I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute, and I'm joined for today's Insights podcast by Thomas Weddell-Weddelsberg, an expert on problem solving and author of a new book on that topic called What's Your Problem? So welcome, Thomas, and congratulations on the new book. Thank you, Martin, and thanks for inviting me. So let's kick off with the motivation for writing your book. Is there a problem with problem solving, Thomas? Do we need to be better at it? What prompted you to write the book? Really the recognition that there's a missing piece in this. Problem solving is partially about solving problems, which people are fairly good at, but it's equally about finding or framing the problem to solve. And that's something I found is largely a missing skill. 85% of the companies I ask, they're pretty bad at it. And even experts, even people who are good at it, aren't necessarily capable of explaining why. To a large extent, it's tacit knowledge for many people. So that's really what drove me to write it. So is the central idea that before you try to solve a problem, the more important problem is making sure that you've got it framed right, you're solving the right problem? Exactly that. And it is, moreover, I'd say it's not something people just accidentally are good at. We know from about 50 years of research that solving the right problems or framing problems well it's something people can learn. And we know it has a great effect in part just because you can save a lot of money on time making sure people aren't barking up the wrong trees, if you will. So let's start off with the broadest framing question, which is even framing something as a problem in the first case, because we can frame challenges as opportunities, problems, discovery processes. Why do you use the word problem? I think because problem is at the heart of many of these things. We know we have a problem when something goes wrong, like there's a negative deviation from the norm of our production or whatever it is. But I also say even things we talk about as opportunities, you know, we want to be number one in our industry. Well, that's a goal-driven thing. But at the heart of that, in order to do that, we typically need to, for instance, identify a new problem that our customers have that we aren't solving well or something that's in, in our industry or with our collaboration partners. So really, the notion of a problem, well, it's just when you have a goal you don't know how to reach. And that, of course, comes up in many, many different variations from acute problems with dropping sales to kind of vague vision statements we need to make a reality and so on. Your definition then doesn't exclude positive opportunity-driven situations, but you're saying that trying to achieve an aspiration is a sort of problem so that you're using a problem in a very general sense. Absolutely. You know, if we have a growth gap, which because, you know, we as leaders go out and set, you know, a high revenue target for three years out, well, that's a positive aspiration that's not driven by any other problem than perhaps stakeholder or shareholder expectations. But it still comes down to finding out, okay, so how do we deliver on that? And even that, as loosely defined as it is, that that's what I see as a problem. Any situation where we don't really know what the way forward is. So let's go to the heart of your thesis, which is, it's all about expertise in framing and reframing. So what is reframing and how does it work? Well, reframing is really driven by the recognition that it's pretty rare we have to find problems completely from scratch. In almost all cases, somebody has already formed an opinion around what the problem is, And then your job is to pry that apart and actually see if that's true. I imagine in BCG, customers or clients don't just come to you and say, our sales are dropping, we have no clue why, help. I'm sure they come in with some sort of idea about what the problem might be, and that might not always be the right one. Yes, and indeed, that's the way we're educated, isn't it? In the sense, the problem is given. 
you open the algebra textbook and it says this is an algebra problem and it's chapter two, so it's addition. But you're saying in the real world, there may be biases as to what the problem is, but really the first job is to figure out what the best or most productive framing of the problem is. Is that, is that right? You're hitting the nail on the head here. When you see how most people learned this in school, they were served a problem that was well-defined already and they just had to go solve it. That's not what most real-world problems look like. Most real-world problems come to us as kind of a mess. And we have to sort out, almost as a sort of detectives, what is the best problem to solve among all of those pieces we haven't. I think that, that intuitively will make sense to listeners. But what is the science or what's the methodology there? Supposing I'm saying, yes, I need to be ingenious in reframing the problem. What are my choices? How do I go about that? I found to really drill it down, the central thing is to separate the problem from the solution. Very often people will go out and say, well, our problem is how do we roll out this solution? What you need to do is to go in first and say, wait, what is the problem we're trying to solve? What are our goals? Who are the stakeholders that are involved? What are their goals? Just get a basic clarity on this. And we know from research that just teaching people the ability to do that and giving them some language around it, that has a quite powerful effect on their outcomes in terms of the creativity of their solutions and also just their ability to not jump into the wrong problem to solve. So I think that's really at the heart of it. Make a clear distinction between the problem you're trying to solve and the solution you're kind of thinking of applying to it. So I can see that opening the door to redefining the problem could be very productive, but it's a very broad door in a sense. It, you, know, you really take the lid off all sorts of possibilities. You could um, choose a different framing, you could choose a different goal, you could examine how you're examining the problem. The, the possibilities are unlimited. How do you constrain that process to not be a problem or confusing in its own right? You are bringing up something important. I think there are some frameworks out there I've seen, but they are very often too complex and basically aren't really applicable unless you have a full offsite with your entire team that you're trying to work it through. So a lot of what I've tried to do here is actually to simplify this process and say, okay, how do we make this work as part of an everyday workday, if you will? And some examples of, I share in the book, I share five specific strategies or ways to try to reframe problems. And I can share a couple of them here. One of the core things you always want to do is to try to look outside the frame. What do I mean by that? You have a problem in front of you. People's natural inclination is to delve deeper into that and ask why. Say, you know, marketing of a new product isn't leading to sales. Why is the marketing not working? That's often the wrong question to ask because that boxes you into thinking that this is a marketing problem where it might instead be around what are the dealer incentives? Is there a problem with the product or whatever is going on? One of the fundamental things here, I sometimes talk about distinction between exploring the frame and breaking the frame, is really to step back from the problem. Instead of asking why, start by asking, well, is this problem even framed correctly? Is it a marketing problem? Or is there something completely different going on? So personally, um... In consulting, which is a sort of a problem solving, I use what I call meta questions. And one of my meta questions is, what am I missing? Is there another way of looking at this? Is this what we're talking about here in terms of looking beyond the frame? Absolutely. You, when we spoke at an earlier occasion, you shared an example from your business. I've seen it, for instance, in 
the world of big pharma, where there was a big strategic shift from focus just on the physician and the patient to a multi-stakeholder model that took a much broader perspective on how do we get our brands out with patient associations, with government, and lots of other different players. So that's one of the typical things. I like your framing exactly of a meter question. That, that's in a sense what it is. Another one of your strategies is rethink the goal. Goals are, you know, in a sense, sometimes sacrosanct. They're given from on high. That must be a hard one to operationalize. How, how do you go about questioning your goal? The simple version is if the goal is just not clear, which it often isn't, just go in and making sure that there is a clear and ultimately measurable goal. Beyond that, though, I say sometimes the key is to go in and realize that the goal you have in front of you might not be the right one to focus on. That can, of course, be a difficult thing to challenge depending on where you're sitting in the hierarchy, but nonetheless, it is a necessary thing. One of the cases I talk about in the book is about the shelter dog industry, where there's always been this surplus of uh, dogs waiting to be adopted, and most players in that space had focused on how do we increase adoption, which is a great goal. And then a couple of years ago, I met this woman, Lori Weiss, who went in and basically defined a new model for that space, namely to focus not on increasing adoption, but on helping families keep their dog. So the dog would stay with the first family and never enter the shelter in the space in the first place. That's a story. I put a lot of weight on that in the book because it has the beautiful feature that is not about technology. This was not about them coming up with a clever new app that did something. It was just a recognition that there is a problem with the stakeholders that they could go in and solve with very low-tech means effectively. Yeah, so my meta question here is, why do you want what you think you want? Uh, Usually there's a goal behind the goal or a deeper reason for the goal, which in a sense is a deeper goal. And uh, the deeper you go, the broader it is. is. Is that on the right track? Absolutely. Understanding why the goal is the goal. And I've heard the expression as well, what's the benefit of the benefit that you're hoping to achieve? It's not always just going up higher in the goal hierarchy. It can also be trying to almost shift laterally. There's a researcher called Min Basadur who's kind of done some work on this and asking, what else are we trying to achieve here? Which can sometimes shed new light on on situations. This topic we're talking about this morning is quite abstract. Maybe we can try and make it concrete for for people. You have some good examples of specific problems in the book. What would be a simple example of a concrete problem and a typical way of solving it and a better way of solving it to illustrate some of the points we're making? I have a number of uh, real-world problems in it, but I'm almost tempted to start with the simplest version I know, and that's the one I call the slow elevator problem. And that's the situation in which you're the owner of an office building and your tenants are complaining about the speed of the elevator. Now, typical problem solving is to go in and say, why is the elevator slow and how can we make it faster using creative brain power on finding new ways of speeding up the elevator? A more creative, if you will, or better way of solving the problem is to go in and say, is it really about the elevator's speed or is there something else going on? And the real world example you see here, of course, is landlords putting up mirrors in the hallway next to the elevator because that makes people forget they're waiting. It's a very simple example. I like to share it because it's something you can explain in 30 seconds that really captures this notion of the method. By questioning the problem, by looking for a better problem to solve, you can sometimes come up with solutions that are much, much cheaper or faster or more effective versus the competition compared to if you had stayed with your first framing of the problem, the elevator is slow. Yeah, I can see that you've illustrated probably at least three of your principles there. So you've gone outside the frame of speed up the elevator. 
you've rethought your goal. Your goal becomes not having people get bored and dissatisfied while waiting for the elevator. And I guess you're also looking at your third strategy, which is look for the absence of the problem for bright spots in the sense that probably have seen mirrors in elevator foyers and realized that things were better on, on that occasion. Is so I guess this is a simple example, but it illustrates the essence of that one may apply to more complex problems. It's really, I found, critical to start with a simple example because that's what makes people understand what you're trying to do. If you're just saying, hey, let's talk about the problem, people tend to immediately apply, not trying to disengineers here, but it is like a little bit of an engineering mindset to go in and say, well, what's the exact speed of the elevator and how can we measure that? That's great. But I think this is, uh, this is actually something you said to me about your experiences. There are some problems that are not yet ready to be analyzed. You actually need to go in and understand up front, take the big perspective and say, what's the problem we're trying to solve? BCG's founder, Bruce Henderson, uh, wrote a piece, as you know, on problem solving. And he said that in business, we never have all of the facts and the problem is never very well defined. So actually, it's an exercise, not just in reframing, but he said continuous, iterative reframing. So he was saying that, you know, framing is not something you do at the beginning and then you solve. You're constantly reframing. Do you see the need or the utility of continuous reframing as you proceed through a problem? As with many other things, I think Bruce Henderson was right about that. It's a mistake to think that problem definition is just step one and you do it once and then you're done for two reasons. One is that you only really confirm or validate that you have a good framing by testing, by going out into the real world. Typically in the processes I've seen, your understanding of the problem to solve develops alongside your attempts at solving it or gathering information on it. More importantly, I think, there's also a sense in which you can get trapped in a, a frozen problem. One of the researchers in this space, Case Dorst, he uh, points out this danger of companies getting locked into one specific problem they're solving and not realizing that that problem is changing or that the world or the context is changing. And that's where you see some of those stories, I think, around incumbents suddenly being caught off guard by somebody who understood that the problem they are solving may actually have changed sufficiently to require a new kind of solution to it. As you know, one of my interests is imagination, the role of imagination, creativity, and strategy. We often think about solving problems as a linear or a deductive process. Is there a role for imagination in problem solving? Greatly so, I think. I think it's a mistake to categorize problem solving as just kind of something mechanical or instrumental, if you will. Of course, there's a sense in which you're going in and just making sure you're not solving the wrong problem. But when it comes to innovation, well, this plays a key part too. You're trying to find a better problem to solve. You're trying to get new understandings of what's going on which is fundamentally a creative endeavor. I think it's Einstein who already back in 1938, he says, the skill here is to see old problems from a new angle. That's really what advances this case in science is about. I'd be curious to hear if you, in your work, I know you're coming out with a new book on this. Have you seen this at play? Um, well, I was thinking about that actually, because your previous book was about innovation and this current one is about problem solving. And I was wondering how the two are related. and. One way in which they're related, I guess, is that when you're deploying imagination, when you're creating new things in the world or seeing things in new ways, in a sense, you are framing the problem deliberately loosely. 
So it's not just a different framing that you're looking for. You're looking for a looser framing. So in uh, in science, there's this idea of the correlation distance, the, the you know the tightness of the coupling between the different aspects of a problem, and in a sense, deliberately loosening the coupling and framing broadly and vaguely, or even in the extreme case, suspending having a goal at all can be productive in the right circumstance. That would be my perspective. What do you think, Thomas? I agree, and I think that's I mean that's one of the reasons why management consulting firms are good at solving client problems. They have seen a lot of loosely cobbled uh, but potentially similar problems in other industries. And once you relax the constraints around, you have an easier time perhaps finding other parties or, or industries that have made headway on this problem somehow that then you can start thinking. That's where you can start really finding these cre- the creative connections that often lead to better solutions. Right. So my meta question for that one is, what is this problem like? That analogy you can only often see if you, if you squint, if you, if you defocus on the specifics and, and look at the more general statement of the problem, which is a loosening of the framing. So when we say reframe, we don't necessarily mean reframe differently, but equally tightly. Sometimes it's about loosening. The and this will be counterintuitive to many people because they think, well, solving as a problem is about defining it very specifically. What we're talking about here is actually, well, you need to do that at some point, but you also need to abstract from it. So I think implicitly we've been talking about individuals. We've been talking as if reframing and solving a problem is about how individuals think about things. Of course, in business, we think in groups. Does your methodology apply without change to groups or does group problem solving introduce new variables? I would say it is fundamentally thought of as a group problem-solving exercise, because one of the findings I've arrived at is, even if this is just a problem solely that you're dealing with, you will arrive at better ways of understanding that much, much faster the second you involve even just a few people. Literally, as a part of my process is to go in the second you define the problem, then you find a couple of other people, share it with them, and ask them to ask questions about that problem. So inherently, I think groups are critical to this process. I'd also say this becomes evident, of course, when you're dealing with complex interdependent problems, because that's where you almost need multiple people to even come in and understand the pieces of the puzzle that you're looking at. Uh, the, the classic metaphor here around the, you know, the six blind people and the elephant kind of comes to mind. Uh, so it is imperative. It also, of course, creates some challenges around groups, because you need to make sure that the group understands why you are, want to examine the problem, why you're not just immediately jumping into action mode and here's your solution. What else have you kind of seen on that? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I describe one of, so when Bruce Henderson says continuously reframe, there's a certain sequence of reframing. And, and I talk about one of the framings being framing for socialization. In other words, the people involved in the problem. And I think about this from a couple of perspectives. One of them is a group is less likely to get stuck because they have a diversity of cognitive approaches. The second consideration is that a solution is not a solution, even if it is a solution on paper, unless it's accepted by the stakeholders that will implement the solution. So there's a selling and a socialization aspect. And then the third one you already mentioned, which is sometimes problems are not simply statable problems. They are aspects of a complex system. They have multiple elements. So you have to solve for multiple elements and with a group in the room that can see the whole problem, which often won't fit in one brain or where we don't have all of the information. 
essentially you're solving the whole system of problems as opposed to the individual problems. So I think it's a key step, actually. I mean, one of the classic mistakes of consultants is to come up with a brilliant solution to a problem absent the stakeholders of the problem. And of course, even if you have a solution, it's not accepted as a solution. So it doesn't work. Yeah. There's some research on the failure modes of reframing. Like what, when does reframing not work? And one of the key findings is exactly what you're mentioning here. If you suddenly see the team racing ahead without bringing the client or other stakeholders along the journey in this. And that, that's why, again, the group aspect to this is absolutely critical. So if I'm a CEO or a C-suite uh, executive listening to this, is this an important issue in business? Is this a, a big price ticket problem we're talking about here? Or is this a level three sort of technical exercise that we're talking about? Well, I'd almost turn that around and pose the question to your listeners and say, what do you see in your company? Do you often see people jumping into solving the wrong problems? Or do you feel that that's something that the business is relatively on top of? Again, when I asked more than 100 C-suite executives this question, 85% of them came back and said, this is actually a big problem for us, and we tend to waste a lot of resources on it. That also means there are 15% of companies that feel we're doing okay on that front. And of course, that might be the case for listeners. So that's how I would approach it. Take a look at what's going on in your company. Are people good at this, about framing it correctly? Or are they wasting a lot of time and money racing off solving the wrong problems? Your book sort of makes the assumption on this front that this is a learnable skill. Obviously, if we're just reading about our frustrations, that wouldn't be particularly useful. But you think that with practice, with study, with more explicit methodology, anyone can be better at this? Absolutely. There's actually been studies done on whether this is learnable or whether it's just about being smart already. And very clearly, this is a skill you can learn. It is separate from intelligence. It is something that can create results. Part of that is creating a framework, having a framework and a language around it. Part of it, I'd also say, is to empower people to challenge the problem framing. I think there's sometimes this trap we fall into with big older companies that we kind of leave people with a sense that they are just order takers. Here's a problem. I want you to solve it. And no questions, please. That might work in some contexts and might give you a lot of speed, but it also comes with a big downfall, the danger that you don't surface the, the issues or the potential different framings of the problem you're trying to solve. Well, thank you so much for sharing time with us today, Thomas. Your book, What's Your Problem? is available from Harvard Business Press. It's a very good read, a very easy read, and the topic is so universal that I think that everybody will find something of interest in the book. So thank you again, Thomas. Thank you, Martin, also for inviting me.